Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Jacob Weasel braved bone-chilling winds, the threat of avalanches, and altitude sickness to reach the summit of Mount Everest. As notable as that accomplishment is, it's one of many ambitious goals a Rapid City surgeon has set for himself, including a drive to inspire young Native Americans to reach high and achieve their own goals. We'll talk with Jacob Weasel about his experience and his aspirations coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Alaska Pacific University received a nearly $3 million grant from the Department of Labor to improve and diversify rural and tribal health care. This is in response to Alaska's nursing shortage. The university partnered with organizations in Bethel, a city of 6,000, that's a majority Yupik, to offer a licensed practical nursing program. As KYUK's Sunny Bean reports, nine students have graduated so far and more to come. The new nursing program is rigorous, and many students have to travel for hours on snowmobiles or take multiple flights to get to clinicals and exams. They have families, they have lives, they have jobs, they have a lot of things, a lot of responsibilities. That's Marianne Murray, Director and Professor of Nursing at Alaska Pacific University. The majority of nurses in the U.S. are white women, but not in this program. Diane Droutman, the coordinator of the LPN program, says the scheduling is different, too. She and a Bethel-based partner designed a one-week-on and one-week-off schedule. And she was like, we can do that? And I went... We're starting the program. We can do whatever we want. (laughs) They also split up the program, so instead of completing a three- to four-year degree in one go, students can start with the six- to nine-week course load. Then they can work. Then they can go back to get the next degree. If there's one thing I've realized since living in Alaska for the last, what, 12 years now, it's that you have to pretty much grow your own, especially if you want people to stay. Murray says there's a roadmap to building a homegrown Alaskan nursing corps. That means increasing faculty and partnerships so they have access to clinical environments to teach in. APU also wants to teach cultural safety, a framework developed for health equity for Native people in New Zealand. It's challenging for APU to operate in the bush. At times, they have no water and internet drops. So they give thumb drives with slides, hard copy backups of exams, and now they're getting high-fidelity simulation mannequins, for which they're planning to record elders speaking in Yupik for simulations practicing overcoming language barriers. In Bethel, I'm Sunny Bean. The Little Free Library, which provides boxes and books to communities, is working to expand its Indigenous Library program. Talia Miracle, Little Free Library program manager, is leading the initiative. She says the program grants library boxes and books to Indigenous communities in the U.S. and Canada. In some of these areas, book access is really limited. And so the goal of the program is to provide more book access, um, to strengthen the community, to inspire readers, and then support um, positive literacy outcomes. The libraries and books are granted through an application process. Those accepted in the program receive a library box to build or a fully assembled one and a bundle of books. We start off the library with 50 books. 
So 25 of those are written by BIPOC authors, and then the other 25 um, are either written by Indigenous authors or they center the Indigenous experience. Um, so we bring really high quality books uh, into the community through this program. Miracle says not only is it important for Indigenous communities to have books they can relate to, but also to offer different levels of books for readers. I think it's also important for kids to see their parents reading as well. Um, so we provide uh, multi-age books in this bundle. You know, we just know that having books in the home supports literacy outcomes, um, and then it supports better outcomes for the rest of your life. Applications can be found online at littlefreelibrary.org. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Nobody likes a crowded highway. A crowded crib is even worse. For a safe night's sleep, use a fitted sheet only and be sure there are no toys, blankets, or pillows around your baby. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Ready to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help with advice and resources. See what SBA can do for you. Go to sba.gov start. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. Dr. Jacob Weasel, a citizen of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, becomes the first recorded Native American to summit Mount Everest, the world's tallest mountain. When Dr. Weasel is not climbing the planet's highest peak, he is a surgeon in Rapid City, South Dakota, specializing in trauma cases. He also oversees a philanthropic organization, the Wopala Project, which is raising funds for a playground in the Lakota Homes housing community in Rapid City and the establishment of three women's health clinics in Nepal. Jacob Weasel joins us today for our regular monthly feature, Native in the Spotlight, and we welcome you to the conversation. Do you know Dr. Jacob Weasel, or are you familiar with his work? Are you a mountain climber yourself? Ask a question or share a comment on the air by calling in today at 1-800-996-2848. That number again is 1-800-996-2848. Get your calls in early, and we'll be sure to get you on the line so you can talk with Dr. Weasel personally. Joining us now from Rapid City, South Dakota, is Dr. Jacob Weasel. He's an emergency and trauma surgeon at Monument Health Facility, and he is an enrolled member of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. Jacob, welcome to Native America Calling. Yeah, thank you for having me, Sean. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And first off, congratulations on your recent Mount Everest climb, 29,000 feet, give or take. I mean, that's not much lower than cruising altitude for a lot of airplanes, is it? No, that's about the same. And in fact, when we were on the flight home, I remember, you know, there's a display on at your seat and uh, it tells you the altitude and it tells you the temperature. And I remember looking at it and we were flying up around 29,000 feet and it said about 40 below and at Fahrenheit. <laughs> and I thought, no, that's, that's about right. Yeah, that's about what it was on the top of Everest. So. <laughs> 
minimal air supply, 40 degrees below zero. I mean, Jacob, I got to ask you, I mean, what is the motivation for such a monumental undertaking? You don't just wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to go climb the world's tallest mountain, do you? No, definitely not. And in fact, I mean, you know, Everest was never really um, within my realm of possibility. I, I had never had any strong ambition or desire or thought that I would ever summit Everest. Um, I got interested in mountaineering a few years back when I finished my training in surgery and um, started off obviously with smaller peaks, climbed Mount Rainier out in Washington, climbed down in South America and climbed in Africa. Um, and I remember, you know, telling my wife that in all honesty, I think Denali and climbing in Alaska would have been the height of my ambition and aspiration as far as mountaineering went. Um, and it really wasn't until I got kind of engrossed in, in the topic and interested in mountaineering. And I came across an article from outside magazine, and I believe it was back in 2003 that the first the first black man summited Mount Everest and then came across an article in 2006, uh, the first black woman that had summited Everest. And it just got, it, it kind of piqued my interest as far as who was the first Native American, who was the first indigenous person to summit Everest. And so that kind of put me on about a year and a half journey where I just kept looking and, and couldn't really find anything. And I employed resources at the hospital where I worked. The marketing team looked into it. They used several AI algorithms, and we just couldn't find anything. And so I remember having a discussion with my wife and just saying, you know, at, at some point, somebody should do it. And um, it, it obviously requires quite a bit um, of investment in terms of time and resources and just physical health uh, in order to make that happen. But I, I told my wife, somebody should do it. Um, and the motivation behind it was never just to climb the mountain, but it was just to inspire young Native people and show them that whatever it is in life that that you aim to accomplish, you know, you are equally capable as anybody else to achieve whatever it is that you want in life. Um, and so that kind of started me on that that journey that eventually led me to the top of the world. Jacob, the photo on our website today for the show, it, it shows you on the top of Everest. You're holding the Cheyenne River flag. Can you just describe for our listeners, what is that like being 29,000 feet above sea level on this peak, 40 degrees below zero? I mean, just what do you feel? What do you see? What's that like? Yeah. Yeah, it's honestly, it's it's pretty breathtaking in obviously more ways than one. Um, and watching the sunrise, I remember when I left uh, the tent from Camp Four, and there for for people who don't know, there are multiple camps that you work your way up the mountain, and you can't climb it in one push. You work your way up the mountain to a certain height, you allow your body to acclimatize, and then you come back down, and your body adapts to that elevation. And so, uh, there are four camps along the way, and from the highest camp at 26,000 feet, from that point, you uh, attempt your summit push to get up to 29,000. And I remember when we left the tent at 29, at about 10 o'clock in the evening um, and working our way up the mountain the entire night and just waiting for the sun to rise as the wind was blowing. And, you know, it's, it's cold up there. And I remember watching the sun just peek up over the horizon over China and um, just the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen in your life and the perfect 
pyramid of Everest, that the shadow that's projected onto the valley in Nepal. Um, and then reaching the summit, I mean, it's, uh, it's a bit surreal being uh, at such an altitude. And I remember looking down uh, as I'm working my way up to the summit and standing on the summit, you see these peaks below you that on your trek up to base camp were so large. And uh, there's a mountain called Amadablam that is, you know, 20, almost 23,000 feet. It's just this beautiful, picturesque mountain. And you see it often on the way to base camp. And when you're looking up at it along the trek, it just looks so big. And it looks like it's something that would be nearly impossible to climb. And then from the summit of Everest, you're looking down on it. And it seems so far below you and so small in comparison and just the perspective that that provides, um, it was it was pretty amazing and and quite a privilege to be able to to sit up there and uh, and see everything else below you. That really does sound surreal. And so four camps, and and you go through these phases, and you you climb your way. So Jacob, from the time you you set off and began the ascent until you reached the peak, how long did that take? Yeah. So. I mean, it's a whole process in terms of the acclimatization. The summit push itself, you know, you, you come back to base camp and then you're waiting for a good weather window. And unfortunately, the weather was pretty terrible this year. Um, and, it, you know, unlike some previous years, I think last year there were 20 really contiguous days of good weather in which people could summit. And this year it was very spotty. And uh, there was a storm that came up from the Indian Ocean that, uh, wasn't really forecasted that that caused a lot of issues. Um, but from base camp, you're working your way up, and that final push took about seven days to get from base camp to the top of Everest and then back down to base camp. Um, and for me, you know, it, I spent quite a bit of time up above uh, 8,000 meters, so 26,000 feet or so, and that's that's termed the death zone because up at that elevation. There's really not enough oxygen to sustain any life. Um, so I ended up spending a total of about 63 hours in the death zone. And, you know, normal recommendations would be to spend no more than about 24 hours. So spent quite a bit of time up there and uh, fortunately was still able to summit and, and make my way down safely. Did you feel lightheaded or were there any side effects that you could note just being in that death zone that you described for longer than is ideal? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think one of the things is, and you don't necessarily identify it as being, uh, you know, being a result of the altitude, but on the way up and on the way down, I had hallucinations. And so uh, on the way up, I was hearing voices behind me and it was voices of friends. And, you know, they were saying, that's my friend, that's Jacob. And I, I hear this guy on a, or I hear this guy named Aldo Kane, uh, who's a climbing, climbing buddy and uh, develop a friendship on the way, trekking and then climbing. And I hear Aldo behind me saying, Jacob, mate. And I, I think that these are my friends that are climbing behind me only to get to the summit and turn back and realize that those voices were all inside of my head and they weren't behind me at all. <laughs> okay. um, and then on the way down, you know, I'm seeing, I have three children and uh, they're 16, 14 and 12 now, but 
I'm I'm on my way down and I'm looking at these outcroppings of this rock uh, on the way down, and I see the voice or I see the uh, faces of my children and my wife coming out of the rock, and so I'm hallucinating their faces coming out of the rock on the way down. Mm-hmm. And honestly, at the time, I just I just thought, hmm, that's interesting, and you don't really think about what's happening in terms of your physiology and in terms of your body. And uh, I'm sure at that point, there's some degree of cerebral edema and probably some hypoxic brain injury just from the lack of oxygen that's going on. Um, But you're too focused on what you're doing and the task at hand. And so you just continue to put one step in front of the other and work your way down the mountain. Because honestly, there's there's nothing else to do at that moment other than <laughs> right. focus on on the task at hand. So, so yeah, th- there were moments there that, in retrospect, I look back and obviously, you know, there were there were times when I could have been close to death, and and there was some some effects of the altitude that were taking hold. Um, but at the at the time, you don't have enough clarity of thought to really process what's going on. Jacob, we're going to have to take a break here, but just listening to you now, I mean, this, it just sounds so cool. It is so inspiring, but at the same time, it's absolutely terrifying uh, the way you describe it and uh, these hallucinations and such, and just to be in that zone where there's no, you're all in there. You're all in. There's no turning back. You just, there's only one way to go and that's up. And uh, wow, we got a lot more to talk about with Dr. Jacob Weasel. Anybody listening to you want to ask a question of Jacob, learn more about this Mount Everest summit or some of his other great climbs, give us a call. 1-800-99-NATIVE. You might know of Australian bands like Men at Work and Midnight Oil. At the same time those bands were getting global airplay, a number of Aboriginal bands were also gaining exposure. We'll look back at some of the influential Aboriginal bands of the 1980s. That's on the next Native America Calling. Akishita Iekichi Hantu Wichak Upo Oyatiki Nanishipi Ktelo Isama Soliachi Hanta Lil Ya Yo Go dot CMS dot gov slash Wicha Wikigini Oapi El Le Wothaniki Medicare and Medicaid Otiatahi Apelo Ho Hesituelo Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking with Dr. Jacob Weasel about his passion for mountain climbing and his work as a surgeon in Rapid City, South Dakota. Join the conversation at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also listen back to today's show and all past shows on all major podcast platforms. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, you know the ones I'm talking about. Check them out. Jacob, before break, you described uh, about a week it took to get from base camp up to the peak and then back down again. So tell us a little bit more about the logistics there. I I know you had a a team with you. It wasn't just you on your own. And and tell us more about the equipment you had and like the food you ate and just the whole experience. Yeah. So, um, you know, when you're climbing, uh, unless 
you are extremely experienced. Most most climbers, obviously, you have a climbing partner, and when you're climbing in the Himalayas, most often that's going to be one of the uh, the Sherpas. And so, uh, the Sherpas that that are there, I mean, amazingly strong individuals and world class mountaineers and climbers. And so, I was climbing with a guy named Lakpadendi Sherpa, and uh, he, you know, he's an amazing climber, super strong. He holds world record for summiting Everest three times within the span of about 10 days. And, uh, you know, you have to you have to first work your way up through the Kumbu Icefall. And um, this is a place where there it's kind of like a puzzle of ice and rock that you have to work your way through. And uh, once you get through this Kumbu Icefall, which takes, you know, anywhere from five to 10 hours, then you work your way across a glacier where temperatures can reach 100 degrees in the midday as the sun is reflecting off of the ice. Um, once you get there, you, you got to work your way up the Lhotse face, which is a sheer, uh, sheer straight up face, steep face of ice um, in which, you know, you have crampons that are attached to the bottom of your boots. And it's basically like having 10 knives on the bottom of your boots. And even with those crampons on, you can easily slip and fall on that ice because it's, it's essentially the equivalent of taking an ice skating rink and putting it at a 50-degree incline. Um, <laughs> okay. so, so once you get to there, you have to pass, you know, these rock outcroppings, one called the, the uh, Geneva Spur. And, you know, the, before you get to the Geneva Spur, you have to cross the yellow band and uh, – you know, these rocks that are on the yellow band, if you accidentally dislodge one with you, with a step that you take, that rock is flying 2,000 feet down the mountain below you. And one of these rocks, actually, as I was coming up towards Camp 3, um, every so often you'll hear the, the Sherpas just yell, rock, rock, rock. And it's from Rockfall higher up, thousands of feet up above you that's just careening down the mountain going 50 or 60 miles an hour. And I was actually struck by about a racquetball-sized piece of rock that, that hit me in the left chest on the way up the mountain and bruised some ribs, um, freaked me out a little bit. Uh, but but that definitely, you know, it shocks me a little bit. Um, but again, like you said before the break, that what other option do you have but to, to keep moving forward? And so, um, yeah, on the way up, got hit, struck by a rock, continued to work my way up the mountain, eventually got to the top and uh, on the way down, like I said, hallucinated. So definitely had quite a few encounters. Um, but, you know, the other thing when you're talking about food and, and hydration and whatnot, it's a constant struggle to be disciplined to, to eat and drink enough while you're up there on the mountain because your appetite is low, nothing tastes good. And so you really have to have to fight and um, motivate yourself to take in enough calories. And despite taking in, you know, three or 4,000 calories a day, I still ended up losing about 15 pounds, 10 of which I lost in about that seven-day time span um, on the summit push. So, but yeah, it's, it's quite a bit on your body. Um, but definitely, you know, coming back down, I had people ask me, is it worth it? And would you do it again, knowing what you know now? And uh, I think knowing what I know now, if if I were to go back three months and I was given the opportunity to, to do it again, I think I would do it again in a heartbeat, to be honest with you. All right. All right. Well, then it was worth every minute uh, of that challenge for sure. And Jacob, I got to ask you this one here, too, because 
you know, I see so many people running around these days with like Trek gear on, all the North Face, you know, the brands. And I'm just curious, do, do you actually wear that kind of stuff? Uh, is that Does that North Face stuff hold up on a climb like this? Or do you have like really specialized gear for this type of need? Well, yeah, there, there's you have to have a summit suit, which is a specialized piece of gear that usually is a Gore-Tex outer shell that's waterproof and windproof, obviously. And then it's filled with down and that down just basically acts as a barrier to allow for you to retain heat. Um, and, you know, other than that, there wasn't a whole lot else. I, I had a pair of kind of just normal hiking pants. I had a, uh, you know, a thin uh, sweatshirt on underneath of that. And, um, and then my summit suit, and that was pretty much all that's needed at that elevation. But without that summit suit, you certainly you can't survive up there at that altitude and in those conditions. And uh, so, yeah, having the having some specialized gear is is useful, and it doesn't have to be, you know, the the high end expensive. It just has to be functional. That's the main thing because. When you're at 8,000 meters, when you're up at 27, 28,000 feet, uh, the wind and the the cold it doesn't really care what brand is is printed <laughs> on right, right. on your jacket. The thing that matters is whether or not it can hold up to conditions. And uh, I, I think that you know that's an analogy that holds true for me in other areas of life, where whether I'm in an operating room, it doesn't really matter what letters come after your name or where you got your degree from what matters is whether or not you can perform and do what you were set out to do in a safe and competent way and so it's kind of the same thing up on the mountains the mountain doesn't care it's very objective um and what matters is whether or not you're able to execute and set out and accomplish what you what you're there to do it's not the brand it's the body that's what matters, as, as Jacob <laughs> describes it. And Jacob, I'm glad you mentioned the Sherpas because um, I don't think a lot of people realize this, but they are indigenous people too. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and the, that Sherpa community, I mean, my understanding is um, going back, they had actually come down through Tibet into Nepal, and, you know, they they are really the unsung heroes of Himalayan climbing and without the Sherpas no expedition gets off the ground and no climbers make it up the mountain um, there are very few climbers in the world that could do what those guys do without their support and um, so you know the guy that I was climbing with Nims Persia uh, he's probably most well known for the 14 Peaks documentary on Netflix and he really brought a lot of awareness to the Sherpa climbing community and has given credit where it's due um, in in kind of showcasing the strength of the, their climbers and and just the world class mountaineers that they are. Well, sometimes like if you read some of these old books and they describe these expeditions and they'll refer to the Sherpas, they don't even sound human. They sound like just like a pack animal or something like that. They don't even really give them the dignity of explaining like who they were and what their culture was and, and, and what their role was. So, yeah, it's just wonderful that they are getting more exposure and more acknowledgement. And I know there are also criticisms that in some cases they're not adequately compensated for these climbs either. Do you have any thoughts on that, Jacob? Right. Yeah. So, you know, there was the, there's a gentleman that I had the privilege of meeting. His name is uh, Ming Maji. And uh, he, he has a guide company called Imagine Nepal. And 
You know, after the earthquake that happened in 2015, that kind of shook the climbing community and and really shook Nepal in general, um, and no pun intended, but, uh, you know, in the wake of that disaster, I think the climbing community began to reassess kind of what they were doing and what the goal was and have really taken ownership of climbing in Nepal. And so whether it's Ming Maji with Imagine Nepal or whether it's, uh, you know, NIMS Persia with Elite Xped, I think that there there's been this growing um, recognition and ownership from the Sherpa community in in taking ownership and authority of Himalayan expeditions and climbing. And I think that that's, it's been a positive move for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, this was my first trip to Nepal, and I can just tell you I, I thoroughly enjoyed every, every minute that I spent in the country. The people are amazing, and the culture is beautiful. Um, and, and whether it would be in Kathmandu or in the Khumbu Valley climbing Everest, um, just, just beautiful people and an amazing experience all around. Well, you've been so inspired that you're uh, working on on building some women's clinics there in Nepal, right? Tell us about that. Yeah, so you know, I wanted to, as I've gotten interested in climbing, I I didn't want it to be about me standing on top of mountains. I wanted it to be for a bigger purpose. And I came off the mountain and just told a friend, you know, climbing Everest only makes sense to me because of the the risk involved. It only makes sense if you're doing it for something, a reason bigger than yourself. And so for me, it was to inspire young Native people. And that's what I do as, you know, an assistant dean with the South Dakota College of Medicine. And, you know, that's what I hope to accomplish through climbing. Um, and and another thing that I wanted to do was to, to give back. And so that's, I started a nonprofit called the Wopila Project. And the aim is, you know, with each expedition and each trip that I do to, to be able to give back to my community locally and then to give back globally as well. Uh, so one of the things that I would like to do is I partnered with an organization called One Heart Worldwide. They are located in Kathmandu in Nepal, and they reach out to rural areas of Nepal where there isn't any real health care, and they focus on women and children. And so um, looking to raise money to build three women's health clinics in rural Nepal. And uh, hopefully when we're able to raise the money and, uh, you know, build the structures, be able to go back someday and, and serve there as well and spend time in the communities and um, help do some good uh, out in rural Nepal. Jacob, I also want to ask you regarding some of the environmental issues there with climbing Mount Everest. And I know there have been some criticisms from environmentalists that there's a lot of trash and residue there on the mountain from climbers. Did you see any of that? Yeah, you know what? I've I've had that question uh, be asked of me. And to be honest, I I know that there's a lot of criticism. I know that there are ongoing efforts um, to clean up the mountain. Uh, Part of the issue is especially higher up on the mountain, it becomes exceedingly difficult to remove, whether it be tents that have been torn up or, um, or, or bottles of oxygen that, that have been left. It's, it's extremely difficult to remove that um, waste from the mountain. And I did not, you know, I know that there's been a lot of criticism. It wasn't my experience. I didn't get the sense that um, it was nearly as bad as what I had read. 
and I guess maybe part of it is that you're so focused on what it is that you're trying to accomplish and you're just trying to stay alive that you aren't there taking taking inventory of what's going on, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. that situation around you. Um, but that, to be honest, wasn't necessarily my experience on the mountain. And I know that there are a lot of individuals that, that are working hard to ensure that the mountain, you know, is cleaned up and can be a place where people can go for generations to come, hopefully. And Jacob, tell us about what your family was doing while you were on this ascent. Did they make the trip to Nepal with you? Were they back home in Rapid City? Were they just sitting on pins and needles for the entire time that you were gone, <laughs> just you know, praying that you'd come home safely? Yeah. Uh, so my kids being obviously, you know, in their teenage years, they, they weren't able to, to take that time off of school. And so they were at, back home in Rapid City. My wife was as she does so well and lovingly, she was taking care of the, the kids and the family. And, um, you know, I was able to keep in contact with them because even at base camp, it it comes and it goes, but you still have some Internet service. So I was able to contact them fairly regularly. Um, my wife was able to keep up the Instagram posts uh, on my Instagram page and keep people informed of, of where we were at in the expedition. Um but, yeah, it was certainly difficult being gone from home for that extended period of time because I left Rapid City on uh, the 10th of April, and I didn't get back home until May 28th. And so it was, you know, nearly two months of, of being gone and away from, from family, uh, but we were able to keep in contact for, for most of that time that I was gone. So a full month and a half. Wow, that is really, really a long time to be away. Jacob, what also comes across here from listening to you is in addition to just having to have the conditioning and the equipment and the training and the experience to make this, like some of it is just there's a little bit of luck involved because like you described earlier, if the weather isn't quite right, that could cancel a climb, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this is just one aspect of mountaineering that is unavoidable. Um you can you can take care of everything from your you know that that you can control but there are uncontrollable variables and probably the biggest one is the weather um and even when you talk about conditioning you know i've i've been on enough expeditions and i would always ask mountain guides you know what percentage of mountaineering they thought was mental versus physical and everyone would say that you know, on average, they would probably say that mountaineering is probably 20% physical um, and about 80% mental. And then there's uh, there's obviously a, a small percentage of the success of an expedition that is dependent not on the physical shape of the climber or the mental fortitude of a climber, but simply based on what the conditions what conditions you're dealt. Um, and so that can be a, that can be a difficult thing to deal with. I remember being on Denali, uh, and this was last summer and it's the only mountain where I've ever had to turn back. And we got to within about 1500 feet of the summit and the wind kicked up and we came around a corner and got hit with hurricane force winds, probably 60, 70 miles an hour. And at that point we were in, you know, about 50 below uh, temperatures, and we would have been in that kind of condition for the next 12 to 15 hours. And the the guides, we looked at each other, and they just said, you know, we, we have to turn back. 
Um, and so sometimes, despite everything within you that wants to move forward, uh, sometimes the the better part uh, of wisdom is to, to just turn back. And uh, I'm glad that we did ultimately, because there would have been about a 50-50 chance of me losing my fingers, at which point I can no longer work as a surgeon or it would become <laughs> increasingly <laughs> difficult to work as a surgeon. Um, but yeah, sometimes, you know, that's just, that's honestly the way that life goes too. And this is probably one of the things that I love about mountaineering is it's kind of a microcosm of life with the ups and the downs and the struggles. Um, and sometimes you can do everything right and be prepared. And despite doing everything correctly and, and having the preparation there, sometimes things don't work out quite the way that you want them to work out. Um, and that's okay. As long as, as the effort is there and you've given it your best shot and you can be proud at the end of the day of what you've done. Um, you know, I think that's, uh, that's just part, part of mountaineering and that's part of life. We're going to take another break more with Dr. Jacob Weasel. When we come back, we're going to talk about his medical career. We'll be right back. Support for this program provided by Vision Maker Media, who envisions a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. Nurturing the next generation of storytellers with courage, generosity, creativity, respect, and commitment. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org, whose slogan is, Together We Are Vision Makers. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Still plenty of time, folks, to join our conversation with Dr. Jacob Weasel, who recently summited the world's tallest mountain, Mount Everest. Give us a call. We've got our phone lines open right now. You can talk to Jacob at 1-800-996-2848. Give him a shout out. Ask him a question. Tell him how much you admire him and his accomplishments. Once again, 1-800-996-2848. Talk with Dr. Jacob Weasel. And Jacob, before break, you describing, you know, just some of the the fate that's involved here. And it just really made me understand just how much we need to respect Mother Earth. And in a situation like that, your your life is in the hands of, of forces that are so much more powerful than yourself. And I think that's a good segue to talk now about your medical career, because in a sense, as a doctor, you have to balance life and death and some of these powerful forces. So tell us a little bit more about what got you motivated into the field of medicine. Yeah, you know, I was a, I was a young man, uh, about 16 years old, and I was kind of uh, contemplating significance um, and, and wanting to live a life of significance. And, and I remember... In my formative years, I was led to the conclusion that significance is only found in service to others. And, you know, when I speak to young people now and when I speak to my own children, I basically tell them that people are born with, you know, passions and people are born with abilities and they don't often intersect. And so there are plenty of things that people are passionate about that they have they have no talent for. And plenty of people love watching football on Sunday mornings, uh, but they can't throw a spiral. And then there are plenty of people that have abilities, but they have no passion for them. And whether it be, you know, a talent for mathematics or a talent for, for something that there's really just no drive behind. And, but what I tell kids is where your passions and your talents intersect, that that's a good sign 
that that's what you were meant to pursue in life. And if you can find that intersection in such a way that it helps to serve other people, um, then I think you should consider yourself a lucky individual. Uh, so for me, you know, when I, I was always interested uh, and peaked intellectually in terms of the sciences, and, and I just felt drawn to pursue medicine at, at an early age. And, um, you know, there's a story behind that, but ultimately I was given the opportunity to do a summer research program at Creighton University when I was 17 years old and ended up winning the first place prize for the research that I had done that summer and presented nationally. That led me to earn a full ride scholarship to Creighton University where I got my undergrad degree. Um, and then kind of just one step led to another and ultimately I was able to uh, accept an offer to, to go to medical school at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Um, spent four years there before going on to do a surgical residency in Iowa. Um, and, and so I've been fortunate that, you know, every step of the way, the doors have opened for me to pursue surgery, which was initially, you know, that was the intent all along. When I met my wife, I was 16 years old and we went on our first date when I was 17 and I remember her asking me what my plans were for the future and I told her someday I'm going to be a you know go to medical school and be a surgeon and it just so happens that that things were able to work out that way um, and so I always wanted to serve people uh, and native people in particular and that's really what led us to Rapid City um, you know my I, I'm enrolled Cheyenne River Sioux and my father is from Fort Belknap Montana he's a Cinnaboyne Sioux and I always felt that part of my calling was was to serve Native people. So living in Rapid City allows me to to serve the greater community, but you know the Native community in particular. And so that's something that I'm privileged to be able to do. Now, Jacob, just hearing a little bit about your life, mountaineering, traveling all over the world, uh, being a surgeon, which is a really intense very, very uh, all-encompassing career and profession. I mean, how do you balance all this? You've got children, you've got a, a wife, you've got hobbies and a, and a fantastic career. Must be a lot to manage. Yeah, I think uh, so. time management is a useful skill. Um, prioritizing is probably more, even more important than learning how to manage your time well. And so I think that living with intentionality, for me, has been one of the key things and uh, realizing that, you know, you're only one individual and there's only 24 hours in a day and using your time wisely in a manner in which you can look back and be proud of, you know, how you've allocated your time and how you prioritized your life. And so, you know, for me, um, my the the mission of climbing mountains and exploring and traveling always will be secondary to my family and my health and my my calling in life. Um, but but despite all of that, you know, I, I think that there there are some people who have a fatalistic view of life and see things passively as though they were happening to them rather than being the designer of their own lives. And so, so I think for me, that's always been a big thing is being intentional about how I spend my time and um, surrounding myself with with people who support are supportive and support, you know, the efforts and the dreams that I have. And I've got a wonderful wife and wonderful kids um, who have been supportive. And, 
you know, I, I'm just very blessed in that regard. Um, and you're right, like taking on numerous roles, whether it be on the board of the hospital that I've served on for for about three or four years now, or taking on a position as the, an assistant dean with the South Dakota College of Medicine or serving on three different as faculty for three different medical schools. Um, there can be quite a bit for, in terms of the day-to-day commitments and responsibilities uh, but if you prioritize and you use your time wisely, I, I find that uh, that it's uh, it's important to to take stock from time to time of whether the boat is sinking or not. And if the boat's sinking, you have to discard and throw some things overboard. And so, you know, prioritizing and throwing some things overboard from time to time is a useful thing as well. Um, and it's been a challenge, but ultimately, you know, I think we're doing okay at this point. So. These are really good life lessons you're sharing today, Jacob, the throwing things overboard when, you, <laughs> when life just gets a little too hectic. And and I really like that, what you said about we're born with passions, we're born with abilities, and they don't always intersect. And that's just so important, especially for young people. I'm sure they get a lot out of it when you tell them, you know, some of these facts of life like that, just so, so impactful. And Jacob, tell us a little bit about your patients. Are you able to, to serve and care for a lot of uh, Lakota people there in Rapid City? Yeah, in fact, um, you know, I think the Lakota community makes up probably about 30% um, of our demographic in terms uh, of just Rapid City in general. And it probably makes about 30 or 40% of my patient population, if not a little bit more. And so being able to serve, you know, my people um, is, well, number one, it's an honor to, to serve as a physician in general and to meet people at a position where they're in, in need of help and, you know, especially being a trauma surgeon, it, they're in a difficult situation and being able to come alongside and help alleviate pain and suffering and walk people through a time in their life that is is really significant. Um, it's a privilege to be able to do that. And, you know, to be able to walk into a room and I, I've had, I couldn't even tell you how many interactions with patients where when you tell them, you know, ask them about Eagle Butte, South Dakota, and who your family is and where you're from, and and they realize that, you know, one of their own is there to to treat them. It, it's it's definitely a different um, perspective, and it's a different take. And I think there's a comfort level there um, that that patients are able to have with me that they might not have with other physicians. Um, and, and I remember talking with you know, one of the elders in our community, a gal named Bev Warren, and, and asking her, you know, to her knowledge, if, if there's ever been a Lakota surgeon in the past, and she can't have, she doesn't have any recollection. Uh, and, and so being the first of our tribe to be able to serve in that capacity um, has really been an honor for me. I know Bev Warren. I've met her before, a really nice lady, and uh, her son, former NFL player, too. Yeah, absolutely. And her other son, uh, Don, you know, he's at took a position at Johns Hopkins now and is doing great work in the public health arena and uh, really serving indigenous health, um, you know, across the country and globally Mm -hmm. as well. Well, you mentioned being able to just connect with people, you know, talking about who you know, who you relate, and that's what it, it's those little things as Native people that we pick up on, and that's what makes it it's so useful and, and so helpful when, when it, somebody like yourself, a Native surgeon, a Lakota surgeon, is able to interact with with Lakota patients and just make it it's so special. And trauma surgeon Jacob, tell us a little bit more about that. What types of actual procedures do you do? 
Yeah, so, you know, doing emergency and trauma surgery um, in our community, that makes up a, a quite a large percentage of cases that we actually do in our operating room. And uh, about a year and a half ago, talking with my partners, I think that the burden of trauma and emergency surgery became became too great to where they they really were looking for an individual to step in and kind of spearhead those efforts and, and take on a lot of, of that trauma work. And so I stepped into the position a year and a half ago. And really, uh, it's anything that you would see in the emergency room, whether it's appendicitis or an infected gallbladder or, you know, a perforated stomach or colon, uh, as well as all the other accidents that happen, um, you know, the Black Hills being here, we have a lot of people out on ATVs uh, that unfortunately get in accidents or boating accidents. And so whether it's a car accident or an ATV accident or whether it's a young kid with appendicitis, that all falls kind of within my wheelhouse. And so no two days are the same when you're on trauma call. And so you, I guess you never really know quite what you're going to get. It's kind of like the Forrest Gump of surgery where it's, like, you know, trauma surgery is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Yeah. Hopefully uh, you can run as fast as Forrest can too. And you, <laughs> you got to get out, get there to an emergency, right? Yeah. Wow. I wish so. I don't know. Maybe at the end, my, my story will be as compelling and interesting as Forrest's was. I don't know. <laughs> well, it sure sounds similar in some regards, you know, these future, because it's not just mountain mountaineering for you, Jacob. I know you've got aspirations to, to ride a motorcycle, I believe, from way up in Alaska down to the, the tip of South America. I mean, you've got a lot of big ideas and goals for the future. Tell us about them. Yeah, I mean, I've got this list of things that I would like to do in my life. And uh, I think for me, exploring and traveling and seeing the beauty in the world around you, I think that I think I could I could stay here in the Black Hills and I can go hiking and I could see the beauty all around me every day and I and there's something that you gain in in traveling that um, allows you to see the world through a different lens and you know seeing how people live differently um, it just opens up your mind and gives you a deeper a deep appreciation for the diversity that we have. Um, as a species on this planet, and uh, that's something that I've come to love. And yeah, I have this I have this journal that has a list of things that I would like to do, and whether it be jumping on a motorcycle up in Prudhoe Bay, Alaska, and taking it down to Ushuaia in the tip of South America, or learning how to sail and sailing around the world, or learning how to swim well in open water and swimming from Africa to Europe and maybe swimming the English Channel one day. Um, you know, I have a lot that I would like to do on my list. And uh, my wife reminds me that first and foremost, we need to raise three compassionate, caring, kind people that will go into the world and be productive members of society. So for the time being, I'll focus, uh, you know, my focus is largely on my family and on my children as it should be. Um, but hopefully the future holds, you know, more adventures to come. Well, speaking of children, Jacob, we are going to have to wrap up the show here in a couple of minutes, but tell us more about this playground you want to build there at Lakota Homes in Rapid City. Yeah, so, you know, Lakota Homes, this is actually a place where I was actually supposed to be raised. Um, my parents had uh, housing set up, and it's on the north side of Rapid and, uh, you know, Lakota housing community, and they currently don't have a playground structure, a permanent playground structure for the children, so 
I always, you know, if I have friends there and I'll go and visit and I see the kids after school playing in the streets and I just thought it would be good for a member of the community to show that they are seen and that somebody appreciates and notices them. And in, in conjunction with that, you know, I, I had an idea of erecting seven uh, informational placards, just one for each of the seven traditional Lakota values, just to remind the community and to remind the children, this is your heritage, this is where you come from, and this is what it means uh, to be Lakota and to hold our values. And uh, so hopefully, you know, over the, the coming months and years, we'll be able to to raise money to, to build that playground and uh, just remind, remind the kids that they're seen and they're loved. And, um, you know, in terms of the traditional values that we held as a community that we continue to hold to this very day, that this is what makes the bedrock of our society and this is what it means to be Lakota. Um, so if anybody's interested, they can check out uh, Um And, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to, to build that structure and just remind those kids that, that they're seen and that they're loved. Jacob, you, you scaled Mount Everest uh, back in, in April and May, and now here it is already July, halfway through the year. Do you have any other big adventures planned before the new year? <laughs> yeah, I mean, ultimately, I would like to, um, to be the first Native person to complete the Seven Summits, uh, which is the highest mountain on every continent as well as the Explorer's Grand Slam, which means skiing to both the North Pole and the South Pole. So in January of next year, uh, I have plans to make it down to Argentina and climb Aconcagua, which is the highest mountain in South America. So hopefully by, uh, by mid to late January, I'll have reached that summit and uh, be one to be able to cross off the checklist. Well, Jacob, we're going to have to wrap up the show now. We are out of time. But I want to thank you again and congratulate you and tell you, please, please, just keep doing what you're doing and keep inspiring us all. Will you do that? I will, absolutely. Thank you for having me on, Sean. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Jacob Weasel, Cheyenne River Sioux tribal member, mountaineering expert, master surgeon, among other things, uh, joining us today is our native in the spotlight. Folks, I hope you can listen in again tomorrow to Native America Calling. We have a holiday encore show planned about Australian Aboriginal rock bands from back in the 1980s. Until then, have a great day, and we'll talk again soon. Did you know that bare space is best when it comes to your baby's sleep? That's right. When you keep their crib free from toys, pillows, blankets, and other loose objects, you can drastically reduce the risk of suffocation. All your little one needs is to be placed on their back atop a tightly fitted sheet to ensure a safer night's rest. More infant sleep safety information at cpsc.gov. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Support by Amerind, Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.